Most of the male runners figured if any woman wants to run 26 miles in a driving rain, let her run. But veteran Boston trainer Jock Semple thought the whole thing was silly. No, there's enough competition for women. What the heck? Why did they want to tackle the, the, the toughest thing in the world? It's just the women and their stubbornness just want to do something that they're not supposed to do. That's all there is to it. You know that. You're married. That was 50 years ago. In the time since, women have made remarkable progress towards equality in sport. Today, 40% of all athletes are women, and yet women still receive less than 4% of media coverage. The Iron Woman podcast wants to help change that. We interview female professional athletes and other remarkable women making breakthroughs in endurance, sport, and research. So that when I grow up, I will have heroes. I'm Alyssa Gadeski. I'm Haley Chura. And I'm Rosalie. And you're listening to the Iron Women podcast. Earlier this year, our sponsor, Wahoo Fitness, did a huge giveaway here on the podcast. We caught up with Jen Matro, who won the Element Bolt bike computer. Jen, it's been a few months since you won our Wahoo Fitness sweepstakes. How has life been since you became a Wahooligan? Alyssa, is it weird to say that I love my bike computer? The Element Bolt does it all. I can see any metric I need, power, distance, cadence, but I have to say that my absolute favorite feature is how you can enter a destination into the phone app and it will instantly create a route to guide you there with the Bolt. I used that a lot in Nice when I was there for the 70.3 World Championships. Thanks, Jen. We love hearing your feedback. If any of our listeners want to give the bike trainers, bike computers, and heart rate monitors that make up the Wahoo Fitness ecosystem of products a try, head to wahoofitness.com. And now, the ladies you've been waiting for, Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. Bye for now. Happy race week, Haley. How are you? Oh my gosh, Alyssa, you're right. It is race week. I'm racing the California International Marathon in like a couple days when this comes out. I am, I'm nervous. I'm kind of nervous to be honest. Yeah. How are you doing? I feel like nerves are good. So we will just leave it at the fact that we're all excited for you and excited for you to go crush this marathon. You'll have all of us flying behind you as you like speedily go through the course. So we'll be thinking about you a lot over the next few days, but I'm doing well. Last week was Thanksgiving. So definitely not like the normal routine, I guess for me, I, Oh, we, I took the train. I have to update you on the train. So yeah, how was that? I took the Amtrak up to Hoboken and Haley, it was like the best, especially the trip there was like the best way to travel, especially if you are traveling from something like Charlottesville to Hoboken, where you were able to like avoid all of the traffic if you had been in the car. So the Amtrak was great. So I don't know. I've definitely been on the Amtrak before when it's been like a cluster and there's just standing room only. And it's like very not good. And you're just like crowded. It feels like a subway, right? This, however, was very relaxing. I was handed a ticket 
when I was boarding, the poor man took my like ginormous suitcase, which I needed for three days, apparently. And he loaded it on for me and he gave me a ticket that like gave me a seat number and I had a seat. And then on the way there, there was like the train was half empty. So I got my own row. It had Wi-Fi that was like definitely as good as Wi-Fi you ever get on a plane. That's for sure. And then it was just like smooth sailing. I mean, there was like 25 minutes where they turned off all the electricity because they're changing from a diesel engine or something in DC. But other than that, it's like, it was super, super easy. And then the way home was definitely more crowded going the other way. But again, it was pretty fine. Like people just do their own thing. And I was just working and like, you can get up and go to the snack car, which I would definitely say if anyone from Amtrak is listening, you could make a lot of improvements to the options in the snack car because cup of noodles and microwave DiGiorno pizzas are nice, but like, I feel like we could branch out a little bit and like expand that just a little bit. Are you allowed to bring your own snacks? Yes, you can. And I had some snacks of course, but like, I was, I was like, Oh, I'm going to go to the snack car and like, see what I can get. Right. But how many hours total or, or each way, how many hours did it take? So five and a half on the dot each way. It was late. The like going to Hoboken, it was a couple hours late coming in from Louisiana. But other than that, it was all on time once I got on. And then going home, it was on time, five and a half hours on the dot. And so my parents dropped me off at Newark Penn Station. And they would have a three-hour drive home from there. And I was on the train, obviously. And then five and a half hours later, I texted my mom to say I got back. And she still had not gotten home. So wow, their three-hour drive was five and a half hours. Plus, if I had driven two, I would have had another, like, ideally three, probably another six, right? So, like, my journey home could have been awful, right? So the train was, like, my saving grace. I was super excited. Sounds like a smart move. I'm glad you had a good experience. And now you're probably going to become, like, a, a train junkie you're gonna be like joe biden like riding well, the amtrak so everywhere i will say i was like oh this is great i'm gonna do this all the time i'll do this for christmas blah blah and then i was like oh yeah i'm on like a training break right now and i'm not having to travel with my bike or my trainer and oh. and and right could you so take a bike on a on you the can amtrak? you can and it doesn't i think you could take luggage like i've taken if my bike was broken down i could certainly take it in my like i have one of those rooster sports bags which looks like luggage and so but I have a little bit of a bad memory of traveling with my bike on a train from when I was in Taiwan because it's just very stressful. Like it's a little stressful as it is because you'd have to like remember to get off at your stop, which is like the advantage of airplanes is like when the airplane stops, you're at your destination. Right. And so when the train is like stop, it's pretty easy to be like, oh, like one more stop and then be like, oops, I missed it. Right. So that's like a little bit stressful for me because I tend to fall asleep sometimes without meaning to. And then having all the luggage and like the skinny hallways and things and like you have limited time to get on and off like that to me just thinking about it makes me nervous totally totally doable I'm sure but it just makes me nervous so I don't know I've taken trains in Europe for races and I was I was nervous at the time and it ended up better than I expected but it does it does like depend on how crowded the train is and I would like strategically try to get on the train at like off peak hours so that no one would give me dirty looks for like my massive amounts of luggage. But I guess you just do what you have to do. And you're like, I'll probably never see these people again. And I'm going to get to my destination and it'll be faster and easier. And that is nice when you can work and not have to be like engaged driving. Yeah, no, that, that was and definitely And you could still listen to podcasts, I guess. You could still listen to podcasts while you're on the Amtrak. 
Yep. You could, I mean, you, I'm a, I'm definitely a fan of the Amtrak and I would say I would encourage people to look at it as an option in their traveling needs. But Haley, with Thanksgiving, how, how was your holiday? Well, I also packed a, like three huge bags. Is that what you said? You packed like, I packed like three bags to go to my parents, which I did not even intend to stay the night, but I ended up staying the night at their house for two nights because we got a ton of snow and it's only a 15 minute drive, but it's a kind of, I mean, it's a little bit of a treacherous 15 minute drive. (laughs) I sound like such a wimp here, but there's also a lot more food at their house. And it was like, I wasn't missing out on anything at my house. And so I got to hang out with the dogs and we played in the snow a little bit and I ran in the snow and it was actually a pretty miserable like on Friday I ran in the snow and I was like contemplating retirement because it was so cold and I was just so cold and I don't get cold that easy. Do you think it's because you haven't adjusted yet? It was just it was really cold. It was oh. like <laughs> 11 degrees Fahrenheit with probably like a wind chill. And my Mm. fingers and my face were just really cold. And I got back to, I got home and like my legs weren't even that bad. My arms weren't that bad, but I like took off my clothes and my whole skin was just like all bright red. Like it was, it looked like I was sunburned. And then I got, so I was like, okay, I need to take like a lukewarm shower. Cause you don't want to like warm up too fast. And then all my skin started like itching <laughs> and I was like, Oh no, what did I do? And I think it was just the blood coming back to my skin. And then I got so cold. And so it wasn't as bad during, it was like the after was like way worse. I mean, it was still really bad during, but the after like got actually worse as I was like warming up. So it was a little scary, but but luckily each subsequent day the sun came out it got a lot warmer and now I'm I'm back to feeling like happy again and I'm okay and I'm like okay maybe I can actually run a marathon because Alyssa like it was so much snow that I was wearing like spikes I was doing everything I could and I like wasn't breaking like a 12 minute mile <laughs> it was it was a little sad and I was like oh no I only need to run like 26 at like half this pace in one week but who knows maybe miracles happen right <laughs> well the good news is is that I mean and I don't, I'm afraid to say it out loud because I don't want to jinx it but I don't think you're going to get that much snow out in Sacramento so that is like definitely a promising thought to keep in mind here and hey, if it does snow, I'm I'm ready for it. I mean, if That's they get true. like two feet and it's like fluffy powder, I mean, I probably won't get my trials cut, but I'll have a fun day. Yeah, it's like Des Linden at Boston, right? You just got to show up for the right day in your conditions. This could be it. Right. And she still ran sub 245, but I don't know if I'm quite Des Linden, Des Linden uh, style here, but I will go do the best I can. And And I did have a good Thanksgiving and the food was fantastic and like I said, nothing, you can be like all upset about the cold and the snow, but dogs playing in snow makes you like love snow, especially like the deep powder and they're like diving in and out of it. It is so cute. Although when it was like, when it gets below 10 degrees Fahrenheit, even cowboys like, yeah, let's go back inside. (laughs) Well, Haley, we had Thanksgiving then the United States at least loves their shopping holidays. So we've had Black Friday through Cyber Monday. What have you been doing shopping wise for people? Have you even started? What are you what are you doing? I've been thinking about it, Alyssa. It's like when you're laying in bed and I'm like, I'm just spending five more minutes thinking about what I'm going to wear. So that'll be more I'll be more like 
effective or whatever, more efficient when I actually get dressed, right? That's about where I am with my shopping. How about you? Any better? I assume you're doing better. You're usually a little bit ahead of me on these things. (laughs) I am. So I, I get very like, I don't like to do shopping in December. That's like the last thing I like to do. And so I, I have almost like most of my shop, my big shopping is done and I've been just kind of making my lists for like the remainder stuff. And we are going to go through some of our lovely sponsors for everyone else out there who also needs either some bits and pieces from gifts to give people or the whole shebang. We, we pretty much have it covered with the sponsors that we have. That's right. I think we should start with the stocking stuffers because we have some good stocking stuffers between our sponsors. Between Noon, Noon Hydration, who doesn't want a stocking full of Noon? I feel like that would be my dream stocking. So all of our listeners get 30% off, noonlife.com with the code IRONWOMEN. And then my personal favorite, I think I already talked about this, instead of an I don't know if your family does this, Alyssa, but you know, you can put like an orange and do you put an orange in the bottom of your stocking? No. Okay, maybe you mean to like make mom? the toe look like the toe or just maybe that's, that's like... what it does. I don't know. My mom always put an orange in the bottom of our <laughs> stockings, but I feel like instead of an orange, although oranges are delicious, maybe in addition to the orange, put like a tub of Zelio's chamois cream, <laughs> you know, that would do the same thing, right? That's a really good idea that, and I mean, pretty much everything from noon hydration and Zelio's are great stocking stuffers and stuff that people always need, always want some more of to have on hand and all of that good stuff. And you can go to teamzelios.com and use the code ironwomen for 20% off or noon hydration. It is code ironwomen for 30% off great deals there. But what if, what if I'm looking for something more like under the tree, Alyssa, do we have anything for that category? I would recommend the form goggles, which you and I have both been using. Um, that would be like a really solid under the tree present. Most people, I feel like that's something you're not going to like, you know, you might like think about it to get it for yourself. So like definitely get it for your friend or your significant other or whoever it is who is a swimmer or a triathlete, because it's a really fun to use. I think it makes swimming fun and it's like, a they'll use it, which is like the best thing is when you give a gift and then it's getting used. Yes. More data is always good. And, and then $20 off right now through December 14th at formswim.com using the code iron women again. And that's like a, a pretty special code. I don't think they give that code out a lot and they don't sponsor any other podcasts. So you're not going to hear that one anywhere else. So thank you to form swim for their support and $20 off your, your goggles for your, um, you know, your good friend or yourself under the tree. Just put that Santa tag on there. (laughs) And Haley, something else that people don't like to spend money on for themselves, which makes it a great under the tree gift is like bike maintenance, right? But it's something that we all need to be doing and having done, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, that is a good one. If you got someone like a gift card or like a, you know, I don't, I'm sure there is a way to do it. Or like, I will schedule a bike tune up for you with Velo fix, which is our sponsor. That would be a fantastic gift because that is one of those things where it's always like you think about bike fit or bike maintenance too late, right? It's like, I have a race this weekend and I have a broken cable. Um, you want to take care of that right now. So that would be a great gift. And And right now, velofix.com, if you use the code FEISTY, you get a major tune for the price of a minor tune, which is a $40 savings. And Alyssa, if you're not quite sure what a major tune is, it means the mechanic is doing a full safety check of your frame and fork. 
making sure your cassette chain and components are in good condition and not worn out. And they can adjust your brakes and bolts and maybe get rid of any creaks you've started hearing after a long season of racing. And you'll get a full clean lubrication and polish. That's a lot. And I don't know of many bike shops that actually do like clean your bike for you. And there's nothing better than like starting the season with a clean bike that you know is safe, that you know is in good working order. I think that's a fantastic gift. And actually, Haley, when you said gift certificates, this reminded me, I don't know if you saw what I had put out on the social medias this weekend, because I said that this would also make a good under the tree gift for someone if you wanted to. And I said that if people became a patron, patron, pat, whoa, if someone became a patron by going to patreon.com forward slash live feisty, there we go, of the Iron Women community. And you let me know that you did it right after you saw this or you're listening to this. I will like extend this for the, for the week of this podcast as well. Um, let me know and you can become a patron and pledge to do 12 months um, at whatever level. It doesn't matter to me. And let me know. And then if that you will like gift that. Right. So if you know someone in your life who listens to Iron Women and you want to become a patron on their behalf and support us in kind of their their name, then let me know and I will work with you. I can either send it to them directly, send it to you, whatever. I'll like write a note of thanks, et cetera, for them being a listener and supporting. And so, yeah, I don't know. I have maybe a few details to iron out, but this makes sense, right? So I think I'm following. So say I wanted to get cowboy. I wanted cowboy, my dog to be a patron of the Ironman podcast. And I really want to surprise him with this. So I would go to patreon.com and I sign up. I'd be like, okay, I'm going to, I'll do $2 a month for 12 months. That's, you know, cause cowboy $24 is a lot to spend on him. Cause he eats too much. He already gets a lot. So, and I would commit to that. I'd commit to the $2 level. I'll send you an email at ironwomenpodcast at gmail.com. Is that a good email for you? And Perfect. I'd be like, okay, Alyssa, I signed cowboy up. This is Haley. I signed cowboy up. I want to surprise him. We, you like write him a card that I can put under the tree. Yeah. And so and then I would even get Ramona to work on the card with me. Oh, perfect. He'd be so excited. And so then on Christmas morning, Cowboy gets to open his little present and it will say, Cowboy, you're a proud supporter of the Iron Women podcast on Patreon. Thank you for an entire year. That's a great gift. Yes. Well, thank you. It's because Patreon doesn't do gift cards for themselves. Otherwise, I would have just sent you there, obviously. So this is a way to do it yourself. But Haley, I think we have one more like gift level to discuss as well, oh, right? The like big ticket, like you love someone a lot gift. I mean, not that you don't. I mean, honestly, if someone got me a $2 a month Patreon, I'm still going to believe that they love me a lot. But someone has a little more money to spend. If you're going to go for the Wahoo, the Wahoo kicker or the Wahoo kicker bike, or I mean, these are some big ticket items. Like this is Add like in the like, like riser. You could do a lot of accessorizing ecosystem, like build someone like a whole pain cave. I mean, they better, they, that'd be a, big Christmas. And Haley, so we don't have a code for our listeners to use, but Wahoo Fitness has been a huge supporter of the Iron Women podcast. And we appreciate you thinking of them for these kinds of needs. And I did see a few Black Friday to Cyber Monday deals that Wahoo have put out on the interweb. So make sure you're following them on all the social media and keep an eye on their stuff because often, you know, I, 
I mean, this is literally me saying I have no idea what kind of specials they could be running until Christmas, but they might, we don't know, right? They might repeat some of those deals. So keep an eye on that. It seems like a good time to be stocking up on your, your Wahoo items. We basically just did everyone's holiday shopping for them. Um, you can also send your thanks to the Iron Women podcast at gmail.com or send us your photos of you opening like your your uh, your great Christmas gifts or your stocking stuffers or tag us on social media or something. That'd be fun. But thank you to all of our supporters and happy shopping, everyone. And Haley, we do have a mailbag question this week. So this came in from Erica and she has a question because she knows that we have been traveling all around the world. I specifically have had like a race support crew, like when I did the long trail that came with me to do that. And she is thinking about racing Ultraman in a few years. And she's wondering when it comes to her crew, what does she pay for? What do you ask them to pay for? Flight, hotel, food, like what if it's just an Ironman, et cetera, et cetera. Like what gets covered, what gets split, all of the things. So this is, this is a great question. And I will take a stab at it here because I have had a few experiences at Ultraman actually as a crew and also with bringing my own crew in for the long trail. And it can depend on a lot of different things, right? So first things first, I would say you hopefully you're good enough friends with these people that communication is like pretty easy. Like talking about money is always going to be awkward, even when it's with friends, but you just kind of need to get over that and do it because I think that talking about it can really help ease a lot of the like worries about this and a lot of the expectations, especially like you, even if I tell you to expect something, right? Like you need to make sure that that person understands that it's expected. So always, always, always like it always falls back on communication with all of these people. Typically, when I have been a crew for Ultraman, you are like flown out. These races are generally in places that are pretty hard to get to. And so, you know, getting them over there with you is like a very huge expense you can help take care of, right? Typically, housing is also something that's paid for with crews, like an Ultraman style, like almost everything for the whole week. It gets very expensive very quickly. I think like things like day-to-day -day meals and like, you know, if the crew goes out for like activities and treats and things like that, like that's not included in that bucket. But like the basics of getting that race like off the ground, done, everything that goes along with that, like generally is covered by people. Wait, it's covered by the athlete. Oh, covered by the athlete. Yes. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry. Making sure I understood that correctly. So like when I did the long trail and I, I brought a pretty large crew out, you know, I had saved a lot of money for it, but like I was not able to save as much money as it would have cost to get every single person out there and every single person, um, like all of the things done. Right. So I, you basically like have to kind of make a priority list, like sit down and think about it and think about like who is most important to be there and like have a, you probably have a general ballpark of like what they might be able to contribute and if they'd be willing to. A lot of people are totally up for, for contributing and even paying their way out there and just want to be a part of something like that. And that's great. Other people might really want to go, but might not have the money to be able to come out. And so Again, you just kind of need to have those conversations if those are people that you really want around you for that event. And so, you know, hopefully it works out often. Like I used a lot of airline points and hotel points and things like that to try and make it happen as well. And that can, you know, you can get creative and it can work. But certainly, you know, there's always people who insist on just paying their own way anyway, and they don't want you to do it. And that's lovely. Um, and but even when that happens, 
I think it's good to just make it clear that like, you know, you're still expecting them. Like, are you still expecting them to come like crew for you or are they paying to come on a vacation that they'll stop by your event a little bit? Right. Like, you know, just make sure that like you've had that discussion because that's something you don't want to think they're coming out and they're like, Oh no, we're like staying separate and we're actually going to like whale watch and we'll catch you like, you know, five hours from now or something. So a lot of, a lot of those kinds of discussions can be had. That's a hard one. And that's actually something I remember from, I think it might be in Jennifer Farr Davis's second book about her setting the speed record on the Appalachian trail about, and at the time when I read it, I, she was reading, she was talking about how her crew came and then they would go off and like, she's like sleeping on the trail and they were like at a house, like in the hot tub having margaritas. I might be remembering this slightly wrong, but, and they would come back and tell her about it, like how amazing this hot tub was. And then she was basically like saying like, go away. Like, don't tell me these things, like leave me, like go home, you know, like you're not part of this. And at the time when I read it, I was like, what a brat. And then since then I've had some like not exactly the same situation where, um, I obviously haven't set any speed records on the Appalachian trail, but I have had times when it, people have come to like support a race and they're like more on vacation than they are at the race. And I'm like, you can do that. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> but you know, cause I'm like, I need to be focused on the race. And so that is definitely a good conversation to have, especially when you're doing a multi-day adventure. Like what, what, what is everyone's role, whether they're paying for, whether you're paying for them or not. Yeah. And like with something like Ultraman, I think it's a good practice to like, you know, email these people or write to them or call them and say like, I could cover this and like, I expect this of my crew, you know? And so like, just so they know what they're getting into, because to be honest, like crewing is a really, really hard job. Like at Ultraman, it's really, really hard. <laughs> and like the long trail obviously was like just as bad too. Right. So for them to do that is, is a big sacrifice. And like, they should be well aware of like, you know, just lay it all out for them. I think, um, Iron Man having people come for that, I think is a little different because it is a one day thing. And I think people take it a little bit lighter then, and might, you might run into even more issues with them wanting to do some other stuff because like, you're not going to have to spend two days packing coolers and going shopping like you do at Ultraman. Right. So if you have someone coming out for Iron Man, you know, for me, it's always depended on the circumstance. Like, was I paying for that, you know, Airbnb regardless of them coming and then I had an extra room, like then I might not expect them to like split it with me. Um, you know, it might be nice, but not expected necessarily. You might be able to say like, hey, I need, we're staying really far from the pool. Like maybe you can help out and get some groceries and make sure I can get dropped off and picked up at the pool for my pre-race swims. And then like, if you do that, like I'll cover the the Airbnb or something like that. You know, like that's a really simple way I think to make expectations clear and hopefully make it work for everyone. But, and if you are like anyone's listening in the position of going out to support and Sherpa a friend, like you can also initiate that conversation. Right. And just make sure that you are clear about like what is going to be happening that week. Yeah. It sounds like the answers are like one, it depends. And two, like communication is like the number one, most important thing, both directions. Like that's the big takeaway I'm getting. Yeah. I guess that like is how a lot of life works. huh? <laughs> But it's so hard. No, these are great answers. And I have never done, I've never been on a crew or done a multi-day event that had a crew. So I'm very, this is fascinating stuff. So thank you for, for answering this wonderful question. And Haley, we do have a um, very powerful interview here today for people. So can you set that up for us? 
Okay, Alyssa. Yes. Before we get going into the, to today's interview, I do have a few stats that I wanted to share with you. So according to a 2016 study by the National Institute of Justice, more than four in five or 85% of American Indian and Alaska Native women have experienced violence in their lifetimes. And the National Congress of American Indians says that American Indian and Alaska Native women are 2.5 times more likely to experience violent crimes and at least twice as likely to experience rape or sexual assault crimes compared to all other races. And what's even worse is that because of lapses in communication between tribal, state, and federal law enforcement and a lack of media coverage, many indigenous women simply disappear. As said by researcher Anita Lucchese of the Sovereign Bodies Institute, these women actually disappear three times from life, from the media, and from the data used to track violence and crime. Today, we're talking to Jordan Marie Brings Three White Horses Daniel. Jordan is a citizen of the Lower Brule Sioux Tribe of South Dakota and a competitive marathon runner. Originally from South Dakota, Jordan ran collegiately for the University of Maine before working as an advocate for Indian country in Washington, D.C. and Los Angeles. Jordan made headlines earlier this year when she ran the Boston Marathon with a bold red handprint painted across her mouth in an effort to raise awareness of the crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women. Jordan's run has inspired other native runners like Washington high school track athlete, Rosalie Fish, who dedicated her four races at her state meet to four different missing and murdered indigenous women and members of the Hardin, Montana girls and boys cross country team who just ran in their state meet with red handprints on their mouths in memory of a former classmate. Today, Jordan talks to us about what she calls the epidemic of missing and murdered indigenous people as well as what went into, into her decision in Boston to paint the red handprint across her mouth, uh, as well as the reaction that she's received since then. We'll have our conversation with Jordan after the break. The Iron Woman podcast is proud to be supported by Zelio Skincare. Zelio's products are designed and tested by champion triathletes like myself. I know I can count on their high quality and long lasting ingredients to stand the test of the hottest, sweatiest days when I'm racing and training. Have the peace of mind to perform at your best without worrying about your skin and hair products. The products you won't want to train or compete without include Sun Barrier SPF 45, Betwixt All Natural Chamois Cream, Swim and Sport Shower Products, and Body Lotion. You can get 20% off at teamzelios.com by using the code IRONWOMEN. Yep, you heard it right. Get 20% off your Zelios order with the code IRONWOMEN at teamzelios.com. Okay, Alyssa, imagine you're stranded on a deserted island and you have to pick one thing to drink for the rest of your life. What would you choose? Haley, I think I'd have to go with Noon Sport Watermelon Flavor. Nice choice. Personally, I'd opt for the Noon Endurance Lemon Lime flavor because in my deserted island fantasy, I'm still getting in regular 90-minute workouts. That sounds totally reasonable. The good news is that all Noon Hydration products are made with clean, quality ingredients that are good for your body and the planet. So if you ever find yourself on a deserted island, or maybe just in the middle of a really long training day, you'll be thankful that Iron Women podcast listeners get 30% off 
all Noon Hydration purchases by using the code IRONWOMEN at NoonLife.com. Hi, Jordan. Welcome to the Iron Women podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. You've made recent headlines as a runner, but before we discuss those headlines, I'd love to hear you tell us about your history in sport. Were you always a runner? Um, yeah, I've, I'm a fourth generation runner. I've been running since I was 10 years old. My grandfather took me on my first run and that first run wasn't fun for me. Um, he was a long distance, middle distance runner and my mom was a sprinter and my great grandfather was a long distance runner. And yeah, he took me on this route that ended with like a mile long uphill back home and I hated it. And so I kind of felt like I had to stick with running one just because it's in the family, but two, I just like kind of questioned why someone would want to run. So I was like, okay, well, if I'll continue running, I'll just run shorter distances, you know, one lap around the track and maybe be a sprinter. But as time went on and the longer distances I, I excelled better at rather than the short. So I kind of came to terms with the fact that I'm a long distance runner <laughs> and over time, now that I'm an adult too, it's, it's something that I definitely enjoy and have more fun with now. And Jordan, we read that in 2016, you first combined running with activism when you organized the run for water rally, which was a two mile run from the Supreme court to the U S army Corps of engineers headquarters to protest the Dakota access pipeline. Our listeners might need a refresher that the Dakota Access Pipeline is the oil pipeline planned to run beneath the Missouri River, just upstream from the Standing Rock Indian Reservation in North Dakota, meaning any oil leaks would jeopardize the reservation's water supply. Construction on the pipeline was ultimately completed in 2017. But what did that initial rally teach you about combining sports and advocacy? Yeah, um, that whole run for water was really to welcome the Standing Rock youth who were running over 2,000 miles from Cannonball to Washington, D.C. to hand deliver a petition to President Barack Obama to oppose this pipeline and to really ra raise awareness of the violation of treaty rights and human rights, water rights, everything that goes into protecting our lands, uh, what, what's sacred, our resources and everything. And I was really inspired by watching our younger generations really take a stand and lead this movement and, you know, speak up about this atrocity that was happening, uh, this injustice that's happening to, you know, Standing Rock, but it's an injustice that's happening all across the nation and all across the world with frontline communities trying to protect their homelands, trying to protect the environment and um, indigenous communities and minorities are often hit first in terms of um, these kind of fossil fuel extractive projects and are the first to, you know, really feel the impacts of climate change. So I wanted to do something that could honor them and really uplift them. And running is the only way I knew how to do it. I kind of was a little hesitant to add on a couple more miles for them, but they were great sports about it. And it went really well. We, we started the day with opening prayer and land acknowledgement, um, really heard from some of, you know, the youth speaking about their run and their journey and what this means. And we went to Army Corps of Engineers and tried to have conversations with everybody that was walking in back and forth, as well as, you know, scheduling meetings that were only for the youth to be part of with White House officials and government officials that are basically in charge of giving the stamp of approval for these permits for, for the Dakota Access Pipeline to happen. And so that was my first time really seeing running as a form of advocacy and to raise awareness. But having that happen in terms of a competitive platform that 
didn't happen until a few years later, until this year at the Boston Marathon. And we do want to ask you about the 2019 Boston Marathon. You ran a 302 marathon with a red handprint painted across your face and the hashtag MMIW in red paint on your legs in an effort to bring awareness to missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. Can you tell us about the cause and the moment you first decided to paint that bold red handprint on your face? So the epidemic in... I would say international crisis of missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. And, and for me speaking, all of our relatives that are, this is happening in our communities, um, has been going on for a very long time. It's longstanding historical violence that's been happening since colonization, since 1492. Um, and it's something that doesn't get enough attention. It's starting to now because we're having so many people speaking out and organizing, um, and using their platforms to help, you know, shed light on this, this heartache that's happening in, in our communities. And it's a reality for all of us. I didn't start organizing for, for MMIW for our stolen until 2017 when Savannah LaFontaine Greywind was, uh, found murdered. And that was something that really kind of just made me feel like I, I need to do something and I need to under Rising Hearts, which is an Indigenous-led organizing group to uplift and center Indigenous voices and, and issues I'm the founder of, I wanted to make sure that Rising Hearts was really focused on trying to uplift this movement and help support those, you know, working on legislation, those in organizations that are trying to help develop policies, those that are organizing on these efforts just in general to raise awareness. And I organized my first prayer vigil for, for Savannah and the movement overall. And that's something that I've just felt really passionate about. And then Me Too is happening at the same time. And I wanted to make that connection at Me Too rallies, especially when I moved to Los Angeles, that, you know, this this is something that's been ongoing for so long. And so many people don't know that this is happening. And in 2018 at the San Diego Half Marathon, I decided to, to dedicate my, my bib number. Instead of having my name on it, I, I put the hashtag MMIW that you know, I would hope this could spark conversations after I cross the finish line and get people asking what this really means and, you know, have, you know, some dialogue about this and maybe that'll lead to actions. And I got a couple conversations, but it wasn't enough. As the year went on, I still, you know, tried to raise awareness about this and organize, but then 2019 San Diego half marathon happened and I decided to do it again, hoping for the same outcome. Wasn't what I thought it would be. So I had the opportunity to go to Boston and run the marathon and be a chaperone for five Native youth who were selected that were juniors in high school to run in the BAA 5K as well as have a college visit with Harvard. And so spending time with them was really inspiring. They know what they want. They, they, they know what their future holds for them, and they all want to give back to their communities in some way. But I took it upon myself over the next couple of days leading into the marathon to, to feel, feel the emotions that I was having, think about how I could elevate this issue that's happening in our communities. And the only way that I, I thought could, that could happen and serve a purpose was to put the movement on my body. And so I painted MMIW on my legs, my arm, and I put the red handprint over my mouth and the handprint's supposed to symbolize the the violence that's happening, that's silencing, you know, our indigenous women, our girls, and our our relatives. 
And that was my way to help uplift this movement and also to run in prayer and dedicate 26 miles, 26 prayers to 26 women and girls. Um, and then with one post on Twitter and Instagram and, and the hashtags that followed to talk about this prayer run, we created a platform of, of running as activism, especially in a, on a competitive platform. And we just, we were able to tell our story. I like to, to speak about it as us, not me, um, because this is their platform. And yeah, it, it led to amazing opportunities where their story, our story got to be told in Sports Illustrated and Runner's World, now this and other, many other platforms, um, especially this platform that we have right now that we're talking. So I'm very appreciative of this opportunity. Um, and it's been an overwhelming journey. And I have four races under my belt right now that I have dedicated to, to this movement and to missing and murdered relatives. Jordan, you've mentioned a couple times now the youth of the movement and how important that is and how important their activism is. And, you know, just kind of taking a step back, I guess I'm curious what your thoughts on and perspective is about why this has been going on for so long and how the youth are coming now at this time in history, right. To make such a difference. Like, do you think it is the rise in social media? Do you think it's a overall cultural shift where people are getting this information and now like caring more? I guess it seems like you've been able to really raise awareness and do so in a positive manner. And so I guess, you know, do you think it's like the influx of the youthful energy? Do you think it's, it's like a bigger cultural change going on? What's your perspective on that? I think we're just in a new, a new time where our younger generations are more proactive in wanting to learn, you know, our culture, who they are and reclaim their identity and have those cultural traditions and practices in their daily life. And they're taking the initiative to learn from our elders and they, they, they want to be, you know, on the front lines or using their voice to speak about these things that are happening in our communities. And so I think it just speaks to the overall time that we're in. We're starting to see a lot more strength and grassroots movement and, you know, youth being the frontline leaders of climate justice. And it's the only word that I could ever keep saying is that it's just inspiring. And having Rosalie Fish, you know, she reached out to me about a week after my Boston run. And she wanted, she was a high school senior in Washington and she wanted to do the same thing. And she asked for, for my blessing and asked for any advice. And, you know, she helped elevate this movement, this epidemic to an even higher platform. And now it's getting so much attention. Now we're starting to see other youth runners, cross country teams, college teams starting to do this very same thing. We're starting to see basketball players, volleyball players, you know, using their platform to help, you know, elevate this, this issue that's happening. And so I think social media is of great importance in, in this rise providing a platform for us to control the narrative and for people to hear from us, um, for us to tell our stories and for us to try and to correct the narrative, to, to change the perspective of how people really view native people, indigenous people, because we're often forgotten about. And so this is our way to reclaim our identity, use our voice and 
with a strong message of we are still here and this is what's happening right underneath your nose in our communities, in your state, in this country. Jordan, in the days before Boston Marathon, you you mentioned how you were volunteering with the Wings of America organization, helping Native youth runners visit Harvard and race the Boston Athletic Association 5K. You then ran the marathon while simultaneously praying for 26 different missing and murdered Indigenous women. Emotionally, that doesn't seem like ideal race prep, but you ran a really fast time. How do you think your activism affects your performance? Um, I think since that was the first race that I did this with, it it there wasn't any pressure, no anything. That was the easiest race I've ever run in my entire life. The very first race where I felt like I had purpose and meaning with my running. And it was nice to share it with others and not have it be just all about myself and trying to run a fast time. And, you know, I only had about six weeks to prepare for this marathon. So I didn't really have a whole lot of mileage or a whole lot of training to under my belt for this performance. But I think having my mind focused on them, but also spending the remainder of that mile trying to just enjoy my surroundings and enjoy the Boston Marathon and enjoy the crowds really made it very easy to get to that finish line. But since then, I've run three races and it's I've been struggling emotionally and mentally, and I'm dealing with lots of anxiety and just a lot of you know, it's a big emotional responsibility that I'm taking on and I'm willing to continue doing it until I feel like there are solutions and this is not going to become an epidemic anymore, or I'm going to keep doing this, you know, until I'm no longer here on, on this earth anymore. But yeah, right now I'm in a stage where I'm trying to take care of my mental health and physical health and trying to, to make boundaries to, to know how to protect my mind, my heart, my body, while still moving forward, running forward for, for this reason and for this purpose. So I'm kind of just in a weird stage where I'm like figuring it out and overcoming an injury right now. But yeah, it, the last three races have been it's so hard. It's been very heavy. My body felt very heavy. And in the in-between times when I'm doing my research to try and find the names that I want to pray for, um, and include them in, in these races, you know, my mind's filled with the stats, the statistics, the, the stories of who they were in their life, the good parts, but also knowing, you know, the, the details of what happened to them. And so that left me in July of this year with, you know, almost pretty much like an emotional breakdown and I, I just couldn't handle it anymore. And so it's been a few months since July and I'm on my way to healing and learning and, and not trying to rush the process to try and just fix it. But yeah, just learning how to create boundaries to protect my, my mental and physical health running forward. Jordan, and have you, you know, going along those lines for many people when they're going through a tough time and things running, it becomes their outlet, right? And that's that place that they can go to, to exercise, to get away from things and, and kind of hopefully, you know, take a deep breath and stuff. But for you, your running is your activism. So, you know, have you, had to consider separating those two and keeping the running as a separate tool so that you can be mentally strong for the activism side? Or are these so deeply intertwined for you that, that you would not want to consider that? 
They're deeply intertwined, which is why I'm, I'm taking the time to figure out how I can keep doing this and raising awareness, um, without having these emotional setbacks, these, these hard times and running has always been my outlet for stress, whatever it was, my way to connect with the lands and my surroundings, a way for me to disconnect from, you know, social media, from, from anything. And I still find that enjoyment there. It's still there, but it's learning how to draw the line of like, okay, like I need to train myself to not think about MMIW because it's always on my mind, but I'm also doing other things. I'm, I'm, I'm a rock climber. I'm a backpacker, mountaineer, hiker, just finished hiking the the highest mountain in the lower 48 Mount Whitney this past weekend. But I also did the same thing instead of for running, I, I climbed 22 miles and had 22 names of 22 prayers, which was very different experience than it is for running, which was, which was nice. It took off a lot of the emotional heaviness that's there, but yeah, I'm, I'm finding other ways to, to heal and, and to grow and trying to keep things a little bit separate. We're recording this interview in late November, and just this week, the U.S. Senate Indian Affairs Committee voted on two bills, Savannah's Act, which I believe was named after the woman you mentioned previously, Savannah LaFontaine Greywind, and the Not Invisible Act that seek to address the issue of missing and murdered Indigenous women. I read both bills past the committee with no opposition, and it's my understanding they will now head to the Senate floor where Majority Leader Mitch McConnell will decide when or if they will get voted on. We also have the ongoing Senate discussions regarding the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, which includes tribal sovereignty provisions. You probably understand Washington better than me, but these seem like popular bipartisan bills. Do you think they have a chance to become law? Um, I think that they do, but over, I mean, the Violence Against Women Act should have been permanently authorized, made into law last year in September of 2018, but because of the budget and, you know, Senate Republicans basically using VAWA as leverage in like a political football game instead of really caring about protecting all women, indigenous women from violence, I think it can become law. It's going to be a battle because VAWA has a special portion for tribes specifically um, that would hopefully allow tribes to, you know, have jurisdictional sovereignty to be able to prosecute non-indigenous defenders of violence. And so over since 2013, tribes have been implementing, you know, the special special domestic violence criminal jurisdiction um, pilot program where tribes have been implementing it and have been successful. But the thing is, is you know, VAWA is always being up for reauthorization. And my, my first thing to say is that it shouldn't ever have to go through that. Tribal communities, domestic violence shelters, domestic violence programs, sexual assault programs, human sex trafficking, you know, all of these programs and people that are working to help end the violence, you know, shouldn't have to to worry every five years or X amount of years if there's going to be continued funding. VAWA should be made permanent. So yeah, Mitch McConnell is problematic. And I know there are Senate Republicans that do raise the issues of Savannah's Act or VAWA, you know, having tribes in their district or in their state, they have a lot of questions about how tribes are going to exercise the sovereignty and jurisdictional rights that they they should have and deserve. 
Um, and that's the whole reason why Savannah's Act didn't pass this past year um, in December of 2018, because Representative Goodlatte, who is in Virginia, who I happened to go protest in front of his offices, both in two towns that he had offices in when I was visiting my parents in Virginia. Um, we got a lot of people there to, to organize and try and leave messages and try and talk to him or his staff because he didn't see that because of the state of Virginia, he didn't see that having tribes be appropriated money or these programs to create a federal database to track, to provide money for law enforcement to be trained um, in working with these programs and working with tribes, didn't see that it was like fit for for his district or whatever. Um, so he was the only one that actually held up the bill and it ended up not passing. So there is going to, these bills are going to be met with some, either a lot of questions and a lot of, and some resistance, I think. But luckily we have two Native women in Congress that have been very vocal and very forward about trying to protect Indigenous women and protect women in general just from violence um, and making sure that we have the protections in place. The importance of these pieces of legislation was recently emphasized as well by the October 2018 report from the Urban Indian Health Institute. This report focused on missing and murdered Indigenous women in U.S. cities rather than Indian reservations. The report details extensively the difficulty the researchers had in finding information, going as far as saying their reported numbers were, quote, likely a gross undercount because of the limited or complete lack of data being collected by law enforcement agencies, end quote. The report also criticizes the media for its poor or absent coverage of missing Indigenous women. We know that the Iron Women podcast isn't exactly mainstream media here, but what can we and other media outlets be doing better? Um, I think just for media and people with these platforms or these opportunities and connections to create space, to create opportunities for Indigenous folks to be speaking about this, to be talking about missing and murdered Indigenous women, hearing from, you know, Anita, who was the author of that Urban Indian Health um, Institute report of missing and murdered Indigenous women. And now she is the executive director and founder of Sovereign Bodies Institute and in creating the first ever database um, that's tracking all of these cases of missing and murdered Indigenous women. Um, and it has been really, you know, been at the forefront of, of this fight, along with many other organizations out there that have been doing this work for decades and individuals who have been protesting and raising awareness about what's happening in our communities for decades. So I think for those in the media, if you hear about this issue and you happen to either know a Native or you see their names in articles or whatever, like doing the outreach to them, trying to introduce yourself, trying to come from a helpful perspective of, hey, I have this opportunity or I'm a blogger, I'm a journalist, I'm a podcaster. I, I want to help uplift this movement and I want to help support you and all Indigenous people. And so, especially since Boston, that's been happening so much, not just with me, it's been happening for Rosalie, it's been happening for this movement just in general, especially now that it is starting to get more and more attention. Jordan, you mentioned the three races you've run since Boston and your climb of Mount Whitney with every, every mile of all of those endeavors dedicated to a specific woman. And you post those, the names of those women that you're running or climbing for on your Instagram page. Have any of the families reached out to you? Yeah, I've had a few families reach out to me, either nieces or sisters or sons reach out and just say, Hey, 
thank you so much. This meant so much to me. You know, they were either said they were crying or it just felt really good to see someone else be uplifting, you know, their stolen relative. Or I've had people reach out to me saying, Hey, you know, my auntie's been missing since, you know, this year, or, you know, my brother was taken from us. Um, and it's the, the case is still unsolved. Can you dedicate a mile to them? And I've, I've done that. And when I'm researching, you know, on finding them, I, I want to make sure, you know, it definitely is focusing on indigenous women and girls, but I also want to be inclusive of everybody because this is happening in our communities to everybody. It's happening to our two-spirit people, to LGBTQ, trans men, boys, elders. It's, it's an epidemic across all spectrums, across all ages and genders. So that's something that I definitely want to make sure that, you know, I'm, I'm uplifting everybody. So we've been pretty focused on running during this podcast, but this is tr- traditionally a triathlon podcast. And most triathletes have a lot of respect for the big Island of Hawaii because Kona is the home of the Ironman world championships. It is our understanding that there is currently a debate over the construction of a $1 billion observatory known as the 30 meter telescope to be built near the summit of Mauna Kea, the highest point in the Hawaii islands and a sacred place for the Hawaiian people. We know you're currently based in LA and haven't actually been on the front lines in Hawaii, but do you have any insight to what's happening in Hawaii? Yeah, all of the the Kanaka Maoli relatives are up on Mauna Kea trying to stop, you know, this project, the construction of a 30-meter telescope happening on their sacred mana. And a lot of them, from what I've seen, have been at Standing Rock, standing with our relatives out there trying to stop the Dakota Access Pipeline. And I know that they've taken a lot from what they've learned from Standing Rock and from the camps that were there and what was happening on the front lines. And they brought that back and instilled it into, you know, onto Mauna Kea um, in terms of creating a school, you know, people learning, you know, their cultural traditions and ceremonies and, and hula and speaking the language um, you have the medics there trying to, to teach about healing. You have music and, and people that are coming in and out people, especially like famous people like Jason Momoa and other actors or celebrities coming in, um, or other indigenous people coming from, you know, around the world, trying to just offer prayer and, and, and meet these relatives that are on, on Mauna Kea and stand with them in solidarity. And I know that they're, you know, have been there for over 120 days occupying and blocking the access road to get to where the potential construction site would be. And I know that there has been movement and actions to try and get, you know, a lot of the funders that are funding this project, especially like I know I found out UCLA, which is a place that I work at, I found out is part of you know, those as an investor. And they started a campaign of the board of directors that were leading this project. And so, you know, I helped try and share all of their emails and contact information with their pictures and like, be like, Hey, you need to divest from this project. This is violating, you know, sacred lands. And, um, this is not what the Kaneka Mayoli people want. Um, there wasn't proper consultation happening with the communities. And so right now, from what I see and what I've been watching is, you know, they're standing strong. They're in prayer. It's respectful. No alcohol or drugs are allowed anywhere on the premises. 
people are camped there. And I know, I think within like the first few days that the encampment began, there was like 38 or over 30 arrests and a majority of them were elders and a couple people that I had recognized from Standing Rock and whom I had met on that run to, from Standing Rock to DC, who I greeted, uh, they had locked themselves down to the cattle guards like all day. And so it was really inspiring to see you know, what's happened in Standing Rock, but the fact that it was happening and it is happening right now in Mauna Kea. So right now they're still, they're still holding strong. Jordan, I've read that one of your personal goals is to run the marathon in a future U.S. Olympic trials. When did the trials become part of your plan and what would it mean for you to line up in Atlanta in February? So it's been a very long dream of mine, basically because my mom was training for the 88 Olympics as a sprinter and my grandfather was training for the Olympics, but because of life circumstances, they were not able to do it. And so as I've been running for let's say like 21 years now, I've, it's just become a dream of mine feeling like someone from the brings your white horses family needs to get there. And maybe that's like when possibly like I'll stop competitive running or at least like training for it, but I doubt it. But in terms of Atlanta, I, that was my goal. I was supposed to run the California international marathon and that's still tentative, but I've been just battling with, you know, an Achilles injury that's been like going away, but then randomly it just comes back. So there's just been a lot of setbacks and I'm not fully confident going into it. And I guess we're just going to see what happens within like the next week before we make our, our final decision. But if not, then it's going to be 2024. And our last question for you, Jordan, is that, you know, our understanding is that a large purpose behind you and the other athletes running the races with the red handprints was to bring awareness to the MMIW crisis. And we definitely encourage our listeners to go check out those pictures and, you know, see exactly what has brought so much awareness to the cause. And for Haley and myself, it got us, you know, to wonder about the cause. It got us Googling, reading the media reports that do exist, reading bills like Savannah's Act and the Non-Invisible Act and trying to get a better grasp of our understanding of the issue. So our question for you is, what do you think would be the next step? Should we be calling senators to ask them to vote yes on these bills or is there more that someone like Haley and myself, non-natives, can be doing? Yeah, um, definitely calling your senators and urging them to vote for the Violence Against Women Act, Not Invisibles Act, Savannah's Act, anything that is really focused on trying to end the violence that's happening in our communities. And also in your in your local communities at a grassroots level, if you know of um, indigenous organizations there or rallies protests, or if you care about climate justice and social justice, you know, rallies are happening all over the place and there are indigenous people on those front lines. So, you know, walk up to them, introduce yourself, ask, you know, how, how can we support you? How can I support you? And whether it's, you know, donating to organizations like Sovereign Bodies Institute, Urban Health, um, Urban Indian Health Institute, uh, National Indigenous Women's Resource Center, Tribal Law and Policy Institute, so many other organizations, and even individuals that are raising awareness about that, just supporting them, if it's through monetary or if it's sharing their content, trying to help um, expand this awareness, and that way it's getting into more people's social media um, scope and eyes, and I guess just showing up and 
and becoming a good ally and a good friend. Jordan, thank you so much for coming on the show today, for teaching us a little bit more about the issues surrounding the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls and best of luck to you in your running and your activism. And hopefully that Achilles injury, everything, everything will come together, you know, for you either in the next couple of weeks, or like you said, in 2024, we're excited to see you back out on a start line healthy whenever that does happen. Thank you. Thank you for this opportunity. This is Haley, and I've spent most of my swimming career squinting at pace clocks or trying to catch a glimpse of my watch during intervals. If you're like me and love knowing your swim splits but hate finding a clock, there's a better way. Form Swim Goggles are the first premium goggles with a smart display that shows your metrics while you swim. You heard that right. Form Goggles have a see-through display in one of the eye cups so you can see your splits, pace, distance, or any other metric right in front of you. I've done a few workouts with the Form Swim Goggles, and the coolest thing is once you press start, the goggles actually know when you're swimming and when you're resting. There's no need to press another button until you finish your workout. Want to learn more? Head to formswim.com. This is Alyssa, and as a triathlete, I am all about efficiency. That's why I'm excited that VeloFix is now a part of the Live Feisty community. VeloFix is North America's largest mobile bike shop fleet, and they know that your most valuable asset is time. VeloFix will meet you wherever you are at in your day so you don't miss a beat. Or if you have some time, you can hang out in the mobile bike shop and enjoy a complimentary cup of coffee to learn about the service being done. Interested? Here's how it works. Head to VeloFix.com or call 1-855-VeloFix, set your appointment, and the local VeloFix technician will come directly to you. Book your service today using promo code FEISTY so they know you're an Iron Women listener. The first 100 listeners to book today using promo code FEISTY will receive a major tune for the price of a minor tune. Again, that's VeloFix.com and promo code FEISTY to enhance your bike service experience today. If any of you are interested in the organizations that Jordan mentioned at the end of the podcast, we will link to all of them in our show notes. So definitely check those out if you want to learn more or you want to donate. And we aren't sure if Jordan will be running, but make sure you check the results and look for her out there if you're there. And we'll be cheering for you, Jordan, if you are running. At the, Cal- at the California International Marathon. That's where oh, there yes. is. Yes. Bring Sacramento. It's, that's like where it's like this is like this, the like circle of, the, of my endurance sports world at the moment. Well, Haley, it is race week. We need you to get, keep your feet up, get to bed, drink that noon hydration and have a good time this weekend. I'm super excited to hear how it all goes down. Okay. Thanks, Lisa. Hopefully I have some good stories next week. Talk to you later. Bye Haley. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Please subscribe, like, and comment on iTunes. My favorite podcast hosts are Alyssa Gadeski and Haley Chura. My favorite editor is Aaron Hamilton. The Iron Women podcast is a live feisty media production.